everybody and welcome to the Smorgasbord. I'm Tom Shapira and with me as ever is... Hello, I'm Sean Edry, the most beloved bone in Boneville. I really should reread that. You really should, it's a great book. Uh, for those just joining, we are a comic book podcast brought to you by the fine, fine folks at Sickport, the best online and on your shelf source for comic books, news, reviews and previews. Buy their books, watch their movies, read their articles. And congratulations to Seaport founder Julian Darius for his successful Kickstarter on Martian Comics. Woo, shout out! If you like Seaport, you can give us money via Patreon. That's right, support smart criticism in comics. So, shall we move on to the news? Because There we have a handful. So much news. Yeah, we had to slash, slash, and pick and choose. <laughs> so, let's start with the movies. Yes, as always. Okay, so Marvel has released a few casting details for Doctor Strange. Uh, we already knew that, unfortunately, Benedict Cumberbatch will be Stephen Strange. Stretching his wings by playing an egomaniacal genius. Oh, wait, no, no, no. That's the opposite of stretching I'm, his wings. I'm trying to He has no wings. Because, like, they hired Paul Rudd for Scott Lang, which was brilliant. They made such good casting choices. And now Benedict Cucumber, and I don't want to put up with him. But the other casting news that they've announced, this is, like, really interesting. Tilda Swinton will be appearing as the Ancient One. Yeah. So it's a gender swap role. And a uh, whitewash role. The ancient, Well, yes, because the ancient one is... He was Tibetan originally, right? Right, but the it monk? was super racist Tibetan. Well, it was yeah. Marvel Tibetan. Where, yeah. like, I mean... But you can't just say, it's okay because we really like Tilda Swinton. It's... We, we really like Tilda Swinton. Yeah. And she has an amazing range and... She has one of these faces that can look good in any... As a man and as a woman. Yep. But Which is probably why they cast her for that role. Yeah, but not as an Asian man. There is a line. There is a line which even Cloud Atlas could not cross. Oh, let's not get into Cloud Atlas, because that's a whole thing. I think the problem here is that it's one of those roles where you have to be really careful when it comes to modern representation. Yeah. Because I'm thinking, like, if you were to do Stephen Strange's origin... As it actually is in the comics, it is also sort of racist. Like, it's the white guy who shows up, learns all the Tibetan secrets, and then he's, like, the best ever. Yeah, but the other point of it is one less role for an Asian dude. Right. Um... Uh, there was a suggestion, I think, on the House to Astonish podcast that Marvel is weary of doing a Tibetan character simply because China is such a huge market right now. That's true. And they don't want to do the oppressed Tibetan dude mm. as a positive character. That would be problematic. Yeah. Well, financially. Yeah. Well, uh. the other casting news, though, is that Chiwetel Ejiofor has been cast as Baron Mordo. That's a good casting. So I assume I'm supposed to be for Mordo in this movie <laughs> version. <laughs> I mean, listen, I, I no, should I should was, want Mordo to win. No, he was the operative in Serenity. Yes. So he's like, he knows how to play the villain that you love to I hate. was for him in Serenity. I really? wanted to kill all those stinky rebels. But he was so terrible. Yes. He's like an evil character. Yes. The only, like, his only redeeming value was that he knew he was evil. And he, he had a okay motivation, he had a desire, and he went for it, and he didn't speak with pissy Joe Sweden lines all the damn times. No, he had that whole speech about, do you know why you're going to die? Yes, that's not Your a Your sin is pride. Yeah, that's not a Joe Sweden speech. That's, that's true. That's a, that's a decent actual dialogue. That's true. So, good casting. Uh, yeah. Speaking of good casting... Yes. You should be happy about this. The uh, Chew animated feature has got some A-list talent working for them. So we have... Let me just see if I have this down right. So Stephen Yun is... Tony Chu. Tony Chu. 
Who's Felicia Day playing? Uh, his girlfriend, Mina Mintz. The one who writes Amelia the Mintz, articles. Yeah. Amelia Mintz, yeah. Amelia Mintz, okay. And then David Tennant is playing Mason Savoy, which is going to be hilarious. Does he have the proper Baroque for it? I think he could do it. Because uh, I've seen him do Hamlet, and he can... He, he can, can go deep? It. He can go into that, yeah. Okay, now, the thing is, the director is a guy called Jeff Curlitz, mm-hmm. and his directing skills come down to... One episode of Torchwood. Torchwood, which the, is not really B, something that you put on the your... The B-list Doctor yeah. Who. The Doctor Who for people who don't really care about Doctor Who. Right. Um, Wasn't it the quote-unquote adult Doctor Who? Uh, I believe so. I don't... Because I see... I remember seeing like one season and being like, no. I, I remember seeing like 10 minutes and saying no. Yeah. Um, a, he never directed anything animated as far as I know. Okay. And B... How is this movie going to go? Is it going to go for major screens? Is it direct-to-DVD? What's the production value? I know nothing. Because mm-hmm. it could be really good, but it could be one of those Marvel-esque, uh, do it in one-tenth right. of a regular budget and throw a 40-minute uh, featurette to DVD. That would be pretty bad. But I think, is Image does Image have an active hand in... No, using be- this or is it no, 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 like because the the rights are owned by Lyman and Gilroy, right? And I assume they sold the rights for some movie production because there were talks about you know doing a, an animated TV series and then doing a live action TV series mm-hmm. and then and now this movie, right. which apparently is only going to cover the first arc, which okay. ends on a huge cliffhanger. If well, that I makes sense right. though because the first arc had a lot of stuff going yeah, on. Yeah, yeah, Chu always have a lot of stuff going on, but. Mm-hmm. If you end it like this, you're basically saying, I want it to be a series of movies. Right. Which is valid. Yeah, it's valid, but maybe you're aiming a bit high for first, you know, animated feature by a first-time director. Mm. It's we'll it's good goes. casting, but I want to know more details about the actual production of the things. Right. Before, before I get my hopes up. Well, that makes sense. Uh, Speaking of things we know nothing about. Yes. We have a new Spider-Man. So we do know something about it. Tom Holland has been cast as Spider-Man after Asa Butter something was rejected. There was some kind of Sony Marvel infighting. But anyway, so Tom Holland. He's British, he's 19, and apparently his only major role so far was a 2012 disaster movie called The Impossible. I don't know anything about this kid. Don't know him. I know him from one thing. He was in Locke, the movie about uh, the guy... um, who has to take a long ride from work and the whole movie is in, in the car, talking with people on the phone. The Tom Hardy movie last year which was pretty good. I don't know it was a pretty good drama. Okay. Uh, and Tom Hardy played uh, a Welsh guy on the way home from work. Tom no. Hardy played Welsh? No, Welsh or Scottish, I don't remember. He, a, a guy on the way from work to a hospital to talk to a woman who was about to have his child and she's not his wife. And, she, and he has to arrange all of his work things and all of his personal things while on the way to the hospital. And that's the whole movie? Yes. He, guy talking in a car. It's pretty good for a movie about a guy sitting in okay. the car and talking. Right. And so uh, Tom Holland was one of his kids. And he did a pretty good role for, you know, a kid on the phone. Right. Well, I mean, a lot's been mm-hmm. said about the fact that they deliberately cast much Young younger unknown. character this time. Yeah. Because they want to keep him around for the duration. The director is John Watts. Yeah. Uh, he only has one feature coming out, something called Cop Car, mm-hmm. which has not yet been majorly distributed, but has been at Cannes, I think, or one movie festival and got rave reviews. So okay. that's good enough. 
he's the director for the Sony film, right? Yes. He's not... Okay, so it, it does nominally matter more because Sony doesn't interfere with their directors in the way that Marvel does. So I'm assuming that they hired him for a specific reason. This is not just like another it's, puppet it's, director. It's, no, I don't know because it's one of those trends recently that you take a young director fresh off his first or second feature mm-hmm. and you put him on the helm of a major, major... Franchise, uh, they did it with Jurassic World, and they're doing it right. with most of the Marvel movies. Well, they're looking Ev- for the next. Uh, we've mentioned what doing. we we've talked about it before, and it's now it's confirmed that Eva DuVernay mm-hmm. is doing the Black Panther straight out of Selma. Now, Selma is a pretty good movie. You don't end up watching it saying this woman should direct a one hundred million dollar superhero action blockbuster. Mm-hmm. The problem with only having like one or two films on your yes. resume is that you can't really look at Selma and say, that's probably the sum total of what she can do. She pulled off what she did in, in Selma, some, yes. but she could be capable of doing other stuff. Like, how do you know, right? If there were other action films on Ava DuVernay's resume where you could be like, okay, that's what it looks like, then I, we'd have yeah, a clear idea. I think the reason... It's like with, when they hired Nolan for Batman... Everyone pretty much had a clear idea of what it was going to look like. Yeah, because he already had two free movies under yeah. his belt. I think the problem with the recent attitude for young directors is that the studios pick these directors because they know they can't control them. If you choose a major guy, you know, someone with a lot of movies behind him and who used to work on $100 million plus features, he will argue his point. If you take someone who previously worked with $1 million feature and you give him $100 million and a lot of notes, he's going to follow these notes because he doesn't really know what he's going into. But they're saying now that Marvel is interested in getting Kenneth Branagh back for Ragnarok. Oh, it's yeah, like, they're saying a lot of there things. There may be... No, and what I'm saying is there is that. I mean, there's no question that someone like Edgar Wright or Patty Jenkins, who ended up being incompatible with whatever larger direction Marvel wants to go in. And there was, of course, the whole controversy with Joss Whedon and, and the interference, and maybe he should have been more interfering Directors with. don't stay with Marvel for a long time. Right. There is something to that. But on the other hand, the films that have come out recently, Age of Ultron aside, did not suffer, I think, for having inexperienced directors. It could be luck. No. It could have just been I th- that they th- happened to have I someone I think it's because the Marvel movies, for better or worse, are mostly... Uh, studio movies. Mm-hmm. It's more like the golden age Hollywood in which the studio had uh, the production ran the thing and the director was there to follow orders rather than impair some artistic vision. For better or worse, you know, and I like most of these movies, they don't have any sort of vision other than we sure like these comics and we sure like making money off but of them. But how could they? Like, I'm thinking here... This might be exactly well. The, the Dark Knight, the Dark Knight trilogy. I didn't like most of it, but it had a point it wanted to but make. It had Nolan's point. Yes, the Dark Knight trilogy is very much in line with other films that Nolan has made. That might be part of the reason why Marvel Cinematic Universe is succeeding more because it's not a situation where you have a director who is rewriting characters that we already recognize in such a way that Christian Bale is Nolan's Batman. He's not the Batman. Right? There's always, and now we have uh, Ben Affleck coming in. Zack Snyder, right? Zack Snyder. Okay, so Zack Snyder's Superman. That's a situation where the director is like clearly exerting more influence on the character than maybe they should. And if the alternative is, you know, when you look at Captain America and you look at Thor and you look at Iron Man, they have remained largely consistent in terms of characterization despite being different directors, right? Like Iron Man 2 and Iron Man 3. 
in terms of how Tony Stark comes across, largely consistent. Maybe that's the way to go when you're doing specifically comic book adaptations. If it were... if it, When you're doing a whole universe of comic adaptations. Right. Like, when you have characters who are passing between directors anyway, everyone who is in the Age of Ultron is now going to be with the Russo brothers, right? So they need to have some kind of connection. These are still recognizably the characters you had before. Maybe that's the way to go. Maybe. It's uh, been working for them so far. We need... I think the thing that will crystallize whether this tactic works or not is Ant-Man. Everybody knows the story behind it. Everybody knows about the mess with Peyton Reed and uh, Edgar Wright and everything that happened. And if that movie is good anyway, I think it'll prove... Well, not if it's good, if it succeeds anyway. No, I'm talking specifically in terms of like if it's a coherent film. Despite all the drama and the recasting and all of that. You know, if it still works on its own merits, then I think you can say, for Marvel specifically, that might be a strategy that works for them. Okay, some actual comic news? Speaking of Spider-Man... Yes. So congratulations to Tom Holland, but you are no longer the canonical Spider-Man because... Uh, Miles Morales is going to be Spider-Man in the post-Secret Wars Spider-Man title. Not Ultimate Spider-Man, not all new Spider-Man, just Spider-Man. Just Spider-Man. They're saying Peter Parker is going to step down and serve as... A mentor figure for Miles. Now, I might need catching up here because the idea is supposedly that Peter gets to go live his life and Miles is Spider-Man. But, like, does Peter actually have a life? Well, yeah, he, uh, he runs he a lab. No, but I mean, like, a, he doesn't have a family. Well, they're doing the Renew Your Vows things, don't they? Right, but that's... Or they a... did that. I don't, I don't follow Spider-Man titles. No, that was Secret Wars, though. Oh. Like, that there's an alternate universe where he never sold his wife to Satan, and I will never stop calling it that, because that's what it was. <laughs> they're married, and they have a daughter. So maybe that's what they're doing here. Maybe in the post-Secret Wars... That he's the Spider-Man... Well... Yeah, he got, he got hitched, and now he's living off the... Uh, I do hope the... so. Well... You know, that would be nice. A, everybody knows it's not going to be forever. No. Peter Parker is going to be Spider-Man... Again. It's going to last as long as Bendis is writing the title. Because yeah. Because this is, like, it is his book. Yes. And, yeah, and so. when Bendis is on a book for good or ill, mostly for ill, mm-hmm. uh, he tends to stick around for a long, long, long stretches of 40 time. 40 years and 40 nights. <laughs> 15 years on Ultimate <laughs> Spider-Man. What, 10 years on Avengers? Uh, He's still doing powers. Yes, 3 years on... On X-Men, right? Yeah, X-Men was actually the shortest of Yeah, his and it's three years. Yeah. And he did two titles simultaneously. So, like, you know, so it's more like six years. Yeah, sure. 60 issues at least. Ugh. I think that my, for all that Miles Morales is popular, it's hard to make the argument that other writers have succeeded with him as much as Bendis has. Like, he hasn't become widespread to no, the No, because nobody that, touched him beside right. Bendis. But now, for example, he is going to be in other books yeah, in the Mark Marvel Wade's Universe. Avengers. So it'll be interesting to see if maybe that's part of the key of, of having him secure his place in the canon, I'm right? Kind, By having other writers... I'm kind of interested to see his post-Secret Wars origin, because his origin was, I must took Spider-Man's mental now that Peter Parker is dead... And now it's going to be, I now must take the Spider-Man mantle now that Peter Parker has stepped in toe in the shower. But they always should have done that. You know, it always should have been... Should have stepped his toe in the shower? No, I mean, wasn't that the whole point of Clone Wars? That, no, last Speak Clone Wars. Speak not... Clone Saga. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, can't, we shouldn't talk about well, the Clone Dis- Wars either. Well, Disney now owns both, so it is possible. <laughs> clones, clones everywhere. Yes. But, I mean, the guiding principle sort of got lost in the huge... Mess crawling of, yeah. crossover, but really the idea that 
Peter did not have to keep being Spider-Man, right? Like, you've paid enough for that mistake that you made. You've shown that you have the responsibility. Marry your wife. Pop out a couple of kids. Live your life. Like, Spider-Man deserves a happy ending. But he can't have it because he's Spider-Man. The, the whole point he is... isn't Spider-Man anymore. But he's not... He's gonna be Spider-Man again. And we all know it. It's interesting the way that they played it out because of the film, right? I the don't... film is coming out at a time where presumably... Peter won't actually be Spider-Man, uh, so I don't know what's I don't going know. over there. Here's the thing. Some comic book characters can be moved, can be changed. Mm-hmm. I think the Flash could have been changed forever from sure. Barry Allen to Wally West. I've, until mm-hmm. Jeff Jones. It, yeah. it could have been. Green Lantern, it's built into the idea of Green Lantern that you can change who is the bearer for Earth at any single moment. I think DC did this better yeah. than anyone. Well, for a time. Yeah. But Spider-Man, Superman, Batman... No. You can't do it for any decent period of time simply because these characters are iconic. They're bigger than anything else within these companies. Spider-Man, yes. Superman, and Batman are on a whole different level of public recognition, popularity. But when popularity. you talk about public recognition, it's their superhero identity, not necessarily... I, no, 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 no. I How disagree. many people have been Batman like in the last five years alone? Yes, but if you ask... Joe, everybody, you know, mm-hmm. who is Batman? Batman is Bruce Wayne, you know, playboy millionaire whose parents got murdered before. He's like, if you ask them, who is the Incredible Hawk? I'd say 10% maybe will tell you he's Bruce Banner. If you ask them, who is the amazing slapsticks? Nobody will know what the hell you are talking about. Mm-hmm. And if you ask them, who is Hawkman? They will laugh at your face. Hawkman is not a thing. No, they'll have answers for Hawkman. They'll just all be wrong. <laughs> he's many, yes. He is many things and also many. nothing. I'm saying it's going to be interesting. I'm looking forward to that. But if anybody's somehow fooled into thinking it's a long-term thing, no. It's not going to happen. It really depends on how they execute it. Because there have been situations where the old guard was phased out and never came back. Captain Marvel, for example. Yes, but Captain... Marvel is... Nobody talks about him anymore. Yeah, but here's what I'm saying. Captain Marvel is not Spider-Man. It's no, so... but, but you have to start somewhere. If you can prove that this principle works for minor characters, there's a process of execution where you could apply it to larger characters over time. Because I disagree with you that like Joe Public would know... They might know Clark Kent. I don't know that they'd know Bruce Wayne. I think they know it... Bruce Wayne, Clark Kent, and Peter Parker. That's mm. the bare minimum. Of public consciousness. I knew these things before I've read a single comic, before I ever watched a TV show featuring Batman, an animated TV show or whatever. I knew that Batman was Bruce Wayne. And I don't know how I knew that because my parents didn't watch these things. But when you look at the marketing for Spider-Man, you never actually see Peter Parker's face. Like, all of the films that came out, you never saw the actor's face on the posters or or like on the... No, but in the movies themselves, he always lost the mask. Forever. He always lost the damn mask. Toby McGuire. Did that happen with Andrew Garfield too? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. They gotta stop that. Uh, Yeah, they're not gonna. Uh, Speaking of creative decisions, okay. So Kelly Sue DeConnick is leaving Captain Marvel, who we just mentioned. This actually fits your prediction from a while back when we were talking about Captain Marvel and the Carol Corps. That if she's suddenly co-writing, it's a sign that she's stepping down. Well, she is stepping down, but her replacement is not. Kelly Thompson, Thompson, who we assume because she was co-writing the Carol Corps, but rather the new writers are Tara Butters and Michelle Fizekas, and they are the showrunners of Agent Carter. Have they ever written a comic before? Not that I know of, but Hmm. Agent Carter did so much right, 
And when I look at it, it's like I'm trying to imagine if they were to bring that style to Captain Marvel, I might actually be interested in, in yeah, but Captain Marvel. Uh, what I'm s- there's a huge difference between being good in one medium and being good in another. We've seen the countless examples of you know good uh, f- uh, filmmakers, good authors trying to make the move into comic and bust down and fail. Right. You, you had some things that work. You know, Greg Rocco started as a novelist right. and he worked, but for any one of those, you have a dozen... Uh, what, what's his face? Jay Courtney, who did Arne and Achman for Vertigo, which was terribly... Jamie Lindelof's Ultimate Wolverine versus... No, but I, we talked about good filmmakers. So oh, okay. People who actually <laughs> have talent in but, one medium. Kevin Smith, uh, who for a while was very talented as director, never really quite managed to land as a comic writer. But you could make the argument that these were people who were hired because of their celebrity status. Kevin Smith at the time was a name. Yes. Like to say that Kevin Smith was writing comics or to say that for the longest time they talked about Brian, Brian Singer, Singer was did... going to write an Ultimate X-Men like, <laughs> oh, and it yes, never happened. Yeah. They were always talking about it. Well, and, and uh, well now, Kevin so, Smith is was a name at the time pe- the comics were yeah, coming out. But, but still, Kevin Smith, even at his highest fame, was just about a name as the people who do Agent Connor are for the nerd community. He's not, no. he's, he was never a multi-million so. dollar director. Kevin Smith movies constantly were for low cost and for a small, small audience. No, but what I'm saying is that in those specific cases, they were hired because they were known. The level of their celebrity, I think, is irrelevant. But, like, had you ever heard of the names of the showrunners of Agent Carter? No, before? but they're saying showrunners of Agent Carter. That's that's the only thing that they're saying. No, but only to provide the link between, you know, where did these women come from? Who are they? In terms of, like, celebrity status, I don't think you could argue. Yeah. Even within, like, Marvel television and Marvel films, as far as I know, they haven't done anything else besides Agent Carter. So I think it's more of a situation of if they hired them for Captain Marvel, when they had Kelly Thompson, and they like they chose a different route. I'm assuming that they already have seen either a script or like or something. There's an interview with them on, on Marvel.com, and they have a pretty clear idea of what to do with Carol Danvers. Okay, that, that, that's good because so, we both weren't the hugest fan no. of Kelly Sue's. No, writing. I tried. I really wanted to like it. But there were severe problems yeah. with that book. But, I mean, I want to read and enjoy a Captain Marvel book. And I feel yeah. like this might be it. Hopefully. Uh, speaking of things ending, uh, Noel Stevenson is leaving Lumberjanes at issue 17. Surprisingly enough, that's not the end of the series. Mm-hmm. And that, that was shocking. Not that she's leaving because the book was only supposed to run eight issues. And it's now yeah. issue 14, I think. But she's leaving and the series is continuing without her. Uh, the new writer is someone called Kate Lai or Leia. It's L-E-Y-H. So I have no idea I, how I to spell, I just say that. I don't know. And she's the author and artist on a webcomic called Supercakes, which is, I've just read like 10 pages of it, mm-hmm. which is pretty cute and adorable. And you can see why they're bringing her in to okay. something like Lumberjanes. Lumberjanes. It is a surprising move. Yeah. You're well, right. I'm thinking Noelle Stevenson is leaving to swim in piles of money because <laughs> she has not one but two movies of her self-owned works being produced, right? Yeah. They're doing a Lumberjanes movie and a Nimona movie. That's huge for someone so it young is. and new. That's We talked about Lumberjanes and I yeah. had my problems with it, but I read, I think, last week, Nimona. Yeah. And it blew my mind. It's on back order for me. Maybe when I read it, we'll talk about it. I look forward to it because it is a phenomenal piece of work. And I can, like, on the basis of that, mm-hmm. 
I understand why she's getting these well, offers. Well, with two movies, she can now scrooge McDuckett and swing in a pile of cash. Although I think, because we were talking about like the possibility that she would continue to do work for Marvel after Secret Wars. I thought it's not going to happen, and we haven't seen any signs of it for now. Yeah, I, just, I don't know. Because like, most writers, you said this and you were absolutely right, most writers these days are using... Marvel and DC as a springboard to get to image where they can do creator own stuff and get so more they, money for it. Yeah. So they start with like the little things, like do Ghost Rider, do things yeah. like that, and then like when you built up your your uh, CV, then you go for like image or you go for boom and you try to pull out like the original stuff that you actually retain some of the rights to. And with Stevenson, she didn't need to take the job from Marvel, no, because by the time she like they advertised Runaways. The Secret Wars Runaways on the strength of her being the, the writer of Lumberjanes. So yeah. it's interesting that she. I think of... it maybe something she wanted to. Maybe she's a fan of the original comic, and they told her, "Look, we're doing a runaway thing in Secret Wars. You want in?" And she's like, "Yeah, I'm a fan. I'll, I'll give it a shot." Yeah, didn't really work, but I well, don't let's... blame her. I blame the Secret, Secret Wars, Wars as a concept. Yes, it is the cause of all. It is the root cause <laughs> of all evil. But uh, hey, if hey, they were to weird make... world. Except for weird world. Thank you. If they were to make that offer to her, though, it's interesting to see, like, would she be willing to continue working with Marvel? Because, as you pointed out, she does not lack opportunities now. No. And if Nimona is as good a film as it was a webcomic, I imagine that, like, the studios are going to start snatching her up. Mm. You know, so, yeah. Uh, okay. Uh, more comic news? I am very happy to announce that Dark Horse has joined Comixology. They throw in the towel about their own personal web app. All will be assimilated. Why are you happy? Because I like having all my comics in the same place. Now, I'll, there's a caveat here. IDW and Image on Comixology, they offer DRM-free downloads yes. of their comics. Dark Horse so far does not. And on their own website, they do. Like You can download yep. your digital comics through the Dark Horse website... But not through their comics and comics. Yeah, I'm kind of weary of comicsology right now. It's one step away from being Alchemax and just ruling the planet. But I'm okay with that. They're always good with customer service. They're very convenient. They're very easy to access. And so again, you like, welcome yeah, our new overlords. I, I, for one, welcome our new overlords. Absolutely. Because it's the fact that they went with a downloading. Because for the longest time, you bought the right to read a digital comic without actually owning it, when for the same price you could get the print version. And there's there's sort of like an incongruity there, right? Because that's not really how it's supposed to work. So when Image started offering their downloads, okay, now you're at, you actually have a thing that you can go back and reread without logging into Comixology again. So I'm, I'm all for it. I mean, I read, I think, 95% digital these days. Mm. So... It's very convenient for me to have everything in one spot. Also, because when Comixology does sales, now Dark Horse books will be included. Hmm. Okay, and the final news is DC. We can never go a week without, well, two weeks, they actually. They had to do, they just had to, because people were starting to forget what utter bastards they are, so they had to well, do something to well, remind the okay. world. No, 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 okay. <laughs> uh, DC Comics have changed their terms of returnability, which is the terms that allow comic book retailers to... Return a comic if solicited improperly. If usually up until now, if the comic was solicited with a certain number of pages, with a certain creative team, and there were changes between the solicit and the order, the comic would be returnable. If you didn't sell them, you can send them back via diamond to DC and get your money back. Uh, it's not going to be that way. 
from now on. Mm. Bob Wayne just left DC and apparently he was the one person holding that policy in line. From now on, uh, if there's a change, there's a cutoff date. And if the retailers don't notice the change via the news that DC sends them on, I don't know, their special announcements, special emails, they can return them. Now, this policy is actually the usual policy for most of the market. Marvel has been doing this since forever and ever. Okay. So DC is basically joining in the party late. They're not being newly besters. They're just mm. as much as besters as the rest the of the market. It's pretty transparent that the reason they're making this announcement of the change of policy is to retroactively justify the fact that they didn't tell the retailers about the half-page ads last m- uh, this month. They did not tell them until after the cutoff date. So they couldn't do anything about the orders once they found out about this new practice, you know, this grand experiment of DCs. So for them to now say, by the way, our policy now says that we can't do the thing that we didn't do before anyway. You would think that on some level, even if they're now just going in line with the rest of the industry, DC is not in a place right now where they've built up an excess of goodwill, where people are willing to forgive them for like the slightest perception of bastardry. I don't think and, that, I think they pretty much proved that they don't care what the people on well, the internet think of them. Uh, I don't think that their concern should be the internet this time. I'm thinking that, uh, you know, well, the retailers. I'm pretty sure Twix sales have been down this month. That I, to, I have to verify no, that, but no. I'm pretty sure that um, I have DC been able to look at and Twix Marvel spot. alike can do a lot to push retailers around because they know that the retailers depend on them mm-hmm. for like 30 percent of their sales at a bad day. And since the retailers are the ones who suffer and the readers don't care, well, not, I don't think anything is going to change about it. It's not going to cause any yeah. change. It's very unfortunate, but it's sad, but it's the system. Yeah. <sighs> Previews! Yes, yes, it's the previews My for September. Time of the month. Uh, so we start with Marvel. Sure. You go first. So this is really, I mean, we're still in the middle of Secret Wars. Yeah. But Marvel have announced a few items of interest. First, oy. so Captain America White, number one and two, by Jeff Loeb and Tim Sale. Can we talk about that title? Well, no. Because he's not anymore. Well, well. Like it might be a little bit on the nose. Well, it's part of the same series of miniseries that Loeb and Sale have been doing for a while. Marvel, mm-hmm. Spider-Man Blue, Hulk Gray, and Daredevil Yellow. For all the bad reviews that Jeff Loeb has been getting for years now, yeah. people keep on saying, well, he's terrible, except these series. People like Spider-Man Blue. People like Hulk Gray. People like Daredevil Yellow. Did they like Daredevil Yellow? I yes, yeah. It got, so it, it got good reviews. And it was recently reprinted, the, the whole three series, the first one, were reprinted in a huge right. uh, hardcover. When so, was the last one, though? Five, five years back, I think. A good long while. Yeah. But Jeff Lowe was... has it? been writing comics since then, and they haven't been... Well, his novel was okay. Was it? Well, nothing is as bad as his lowest lows. He hasn't written... <laughs> You'd have to work pretty yeah, hard to yeah. get there. He hasn't written another ultimatum. No. No. So, yeah, okay, fine, whatever. I mean, I'm not going to read it, but okay. Uh, the first issue is $5, but it's $5 for like 60 pages. So, for once, Marvel is actually pricing right. Mm-hmm. And it also apparently contains issue number zero, which they're now folding their number zeros into their number one. So just call it number one. Why? I don't understand. Okay. Journey to Star Wars, The Force Awakens, Shattered Empire. That's, That's a awesome. mouthful. Ooh. That's a mouthful. Is that uh, the longest title that we've seen so far? 
Uh, no, no, I assume not. Number one and two, four, uh, written by Greg Rocca. Hooray! And drawn by Marco Cercetto, which is, he's good. I, rem- I, I don't remember what I've read by him, but I've read something. He was perfectly good. Okay. So it's the first time in the Star Wars canon, uh, they're doing their post-Return of the Jedi stuff. Which they should have been doing all along. Well, okay. yeah. A prequel to the upcoming Star Wars The Force Awakens movie. Is this the first time Greg Rucka has come back to Marvel since that whole thing? No, no. I think he wrote something for... Or maybe it's maybe I'm confused with DC. Because he came back for DC for the Convergence. Yeah. I, I did the, the question. Yes. But I'm trying to remember. What was the last thing Greg Rucka did for Marvel? I do not... I, I do not recall. Oof. I well, welcome do not back, recall. I, guess. I don't know. Maybe that means he's... Got over whatever problem they had. Okay. Uh, Miracle Man. Well, okay. So it's called Miracle Man, Gaiman and Buckingham, number one. That's really. I don't know why they did that. I well, don't... here's the thing. Miracle Man sales are in the tank. That's fine. You're not publishing yeah. this for the sales. Well, the Marvel never do anything but for the sales. No, they They're... did this to get on Neil Gaiman's good side. No, if they were just wanting to get on his good side, they would just print the trades and then do his stuff. The fact that they're doing it in issues and charging $5 a piece for old, old titles, Mm. they're trying to reap their benefits, but it doesn't succeed. These sales are terrible. There was a huge offer on the Marvel uh, special services like two months ago. Mm. The whole 10 issues for less than a dollar a piece, the whole first... Miracle Man issues, if you want to order them. You priced it that all, all along, you know. I mean, like <laughs> Marvel is no, not going to price anything at a dollar a piece. Miracle Man has a really severe problem at the moment, which is that it took Marvel so damn long to get to the point where everyone was interested. You remember when they first made this announcement? It was like three, four years ago, and then they started putting out those trades of the Golden Age stuff that nobody wanted to see and nobody nope. cared about, all that Mick Anglo nonsense. And it's like... They finally got around to... I mean, okay, so they're soliciting now the first issue of Game In and Buckingham's run. I am assuming that means that they have the completed series somewhere, right? They would not have solicited, especially with a renumbering. In a special, special vault every it's, day... No, that means that Joe it's Quesada done. goes down a vault, uh, an elevator, and does the Get Smart <laughs> opening scene. Da, da, da. And the doors start opening one after the other. But that's what it means, right? Because they wouldn't have solicited it otherwise. So the series is complete. This is the thing that people were waiting for when the first marketing announcement started coming out and everyone was getting excited, right? It was the lost epic. And ever since then, Miracle Man sales are tanking. But they're tanking because Marvel did everything wrong here. They started out with the old material that nobody cared about. They did that annual with Grant Morrison, which was absolutely terrible and led nowhere that anybody wanted to go. It took them so long to put out Alan Moore's run, right? Just to get it out Sorry, sorry. The original writer's run. That's not fooling anybody. Come at me, Alan Moore. But, I mean, no. What, if you say his name three times, he's going to pop out of your TV? Come on. No, I don't have a mirror. (laughs) That's why I don't have a mirror in my house. Alan Moore will To avoid Alan Moore. (laughs) But, I mean, really, they they sabotaged themselves in so many ways. And now they're finally doing the thing that, when there was that huge response to it originally, this is what they wanted to see. They wanted to hear that Neil Gaiman was going to do, he was going to finish the Silver Age, he's going to do the Dark Age, and that will be the end of the story. And on the trade department, yes, on the weird, weird end of the trade department, <laughs> Monster of Frankenstein TPB 
collecting the 18 issues of Frankenstein ongoing from 1970s Marvel along with Giant Size Werewolf uh, Marvel Team Up uh, number 36 and 37 and Monsters Unleashed number 2, 4 and 10. That's uh, $40 for 536 pages of Gary Friedrich, Doug Munch and Bill Mantelow. Now, the Marvel Frankenstein title began as a straight adaptation of the novel in the Mar- in the 1970s Marvel style, but still a direct adaptation. But then they finished it after four issues, and they just kept on going. And they had him fight Dracula, which, as usual, and the werewolves, of course. And then they brought him into the Marvel Universe proper. I never read those. I've only read old solicitations, and somebody did summations online a long, long while back. Mm-hmm. I'm dying to read this because it sounds properly insane. It sounds completely off the wall. Just like there... Have you ever read Marvel's Godzilla? No. Oh, yeah. That's weird. Bill Mantelo, 1970s. That's the good stuff. Yeah, that was when everybody... That's the good stuff that we're not allowed to talk about. That's because it's a podcast for the whole family. Uh Uh-huh. Anything else from Marvel? Well... They're making a big deal about the fact that it's S.H.I.E.L.D.'s 50th anniversary, so you have a bunch of one-shots coming out. Nothing particularly interesting. Some of it's a follow-up to Operation Watch Ice Blue Ice. Shirts Dying repeatedly. Yeah, you know. Age of Ultron coloring book. <laughs> <laughs> Penciled by Brian Hitch, Brendan Peterson, Carlos Pacheco, and more. It's an adult-aimed coloring book. Eight dollars for seventy-two pages. I think they may be uh, what slightly confusing because their, their in, here books. in Israel, adult coloring books are now a thing. People are, are they? Yes, yes. In Israel, it's now a thing. People are why? why? I don't know. It's supposed to be very relaxing, yeah. though. You know, even at his worst, if you you really want to let someone color a Brian Itch page, it's a, <laughs> it's it's work. The the only worst thing is saying, well, it's it's the Jeff Darrow coloring book. Spend Color- spend the next forty eight hours coloring the first panel. It should have been Chris Bakalov. That would give him something to do. <laughs> yeah, just uh, pour all the color. It doesn't really matter if you stain the lines or not. DC, DC. Uh, go ahead. Okay, so I really only have two points of interest here because, again, like they, this is the middle of the divergence event. Yes. So all of those new titles are still ongoing. And there haven't been any cancellations yet. Now, Sandman Overture is ending. Hallelujah! We'll see about that. I'll which which Gaiman pro- <laughs> which long-awaited Gaiman project will end first? Will reach the finish line? Oh, that's a good yeah. question. It's a competition now. I mean, okay, so, so nobody is particularly surprised to hear that Sandman Overture has been late a lot. First and issue was two thirteen, right? I think so. Yes, think for a so. six-issue mini. So it was obvious that that was going to happen because of J.H. Williams? Yes. Like, but at the same time... They had 20 years. Yeah. They had 20 years to prepare. Well, no, no. I'm sure that what happened was that, you know, Neil Gaiman woke up one day and he's like, I feel like writing Sandman again. Fetch me an artist! And, <laughs> I mean, look, like, on paper... I must have a quill! I mean, when this comes out as a collected edition, people are going to fly over it, right? Yes. Because J., you're going to have all of J.H. Williams... Uh, work collected when the story is going to be coherent without like gaps of an entire year between then issues. again how i hope they bring a better quality of printing than dc usually does with their hardcover yeah a dc hardcover tends to lose a lot of the lines at the crease and it's jh williams doing double spreads all over the place that's true so you need top of the damn line Unless printing for that one digital and then you have the whole beautiful well thing on the i screen. i've tried reading it digital 
my screen isn't big enough. I always have to zoom in, zoom out on details. It's one of these things that doesn't really work for me in digital at all. Huh. J.H., have you tried? J.H. Williams, sure. This J.H. Williams, the Sandman I'm, thing? I'm waiting until it's finished in order to review well, it. Because but... the first issue I tried on digital, it was nigh unreadable for me. Huh. Just about every other page is a double spread. And, right. And it contains, you know, small details. So and, you zoom in with your fingers. Well, yeah, but then you lose the whole... You have to both see the image and see the whole context for mm. it to work. Okay. But, you know, we'll maybe it, maybe it works for you better than for me. Could be. Uh, from the, damn, this sounds awesome solicit. I, I'm not going to read it, but it do sounds it, awesome. Do it. Do He-Man Eternity War number 10 by Dan Abnett and Pop Man. I want you to do it in the voice of the person speaking. Come uh, on. I can't do voice. Yes, you can. I can try the 1980s voice. Neither Frank Langer. I am Skeletor, Devil of Eternia, and Raider of the Secrets of the Castle Greyskull. Fearsome powers were revealed to me the day I held aloft my frightful sword and said, by the power of Greyskull, I am the power! That's oh the best solicit of the year. What? I have never read a single issue of the Human Comic. <laughs> That's the best solicit of the year. You know what? I'm going to read this. We're gonna, <laughs> we're, we will review just number 10. Even though it's the middle of a damn storyline. I make no such promises, but wow. Wow, yeah. That is... Who's writing it? Dan, Dan Abnett. Abnett. Dan Abnett. Since when is Dan Abnett that good at like channeling pure distilled 1980s? <laughs> wow. That man can be awesome when Ooh. he wants to. I really only have one other thing from mm. DC. Um, and it's... American Vampire number 10 has been re-solicited again. I, this is like the third or fourth time. I keep seeing like those same three solicitation texts turning up again and again and again, one after the other. I don't know what's going on with this book. I don't know if the problem is Snyder or Albuquerque, but people, you left us hanging. Get back to work. Is one of them going to turn up in a huge mecha bunny suit? I, I mean, listen, I feel like I need to become a vampire in order to get live long enough to get to the end of the series. Uh, Catwoman Celebration of 75 Years. Mm. DC have been doing these hardcovers for a while now. Superman, Lois Lane, uh, Batman the Joker. Why not so Catwoman? Yeah. Stories from Bill Finger, uh, Ed Brubaker, Danny O'Neill, and others. Uh, $40, 400 pages. If, if you like Catwoman, yeah. Yeah, that's your thing. Why wouldn't you like Catwoman? Yeah. Uh, Image? Image Comics. This is a month where, like, oh, yeah, it's a lot busy. of stuff that they announced at the at the expo, and I was like, yes, I want that, and now it's finally coming out. Yep. Uh, some stuff they haven't announced. Headlooper number one, story and art by Andrew McLean, cover by Rafael Grampa, 96 pages, first issue, uh, $6. Uh, Andrew McLean is an artist... Uh, who did uh, Headlooper, which was a Kickstarter project very well regarded. Mm-hmm. He recently released Apocalyptic Girl, a very, very good graphic novel via Dark Horse. And now he's doing Headlooper ongoing for Image. It's a fantasy, sort of comedy, not, not right. you know... He lops off heads. Yeah, That's a yeah, that yeah. sums it up. I, I, like, a, I guess, a darker version of uh, Skull Kickers or something. Well, the thing that wasn't clear to me, like, so this is an indie series that was kickstarted and is coming to Image. Yes. And I did some checking, and apparently, as far as I could tell, only two issues were ever produced. Well, I, I don't think there were issues. There were, like, mini books, like 80-page booklets thing. They also Are pre- they just reprinting? No, they're start by reprinting the original Kickstarter thing, and then they're, and they're the doing new- the series at the same time. Because this month. is also 80 pages, this double-sized first issue, yes. right? So I'm assuming they're going to do the first two issues and then keep going. Keep, keep on going. Okay. No, I assume. Maybe. 
because it's number one. Otherwise, it would, if it was just a book, they could, they would just solicit it as Headlooper Volume One, just like they did with Sex Castle. But Image did Kickstarter projects before, right? And it's and ninety six pages is big. It is. It's um, huge for six dollars. That's nothing. I feel like I need to know more about this before I commit to it. Okay. Because if it ends up only being like because they have been taking on a few indie comics, mm-hmm. like former indie comics, and bringing them in, and then it's never quite sure, like, are they continuing it or just reprinting it? No, because... With uh, the humans, for example, yeah, went humans, beyond the yeah. original remit. I don't know. And you fool did not like it. I still don't like it. How much has changed. Issue number five. Plutona number one. Okay. Four issue miniseries. This is by Jeff Lemire and Emmy Lennox. It's the miniseries they mentioned about uh, a bunch of kids who find the dead body of the world's greatest superhero. Yes. Which I find, like, that's an intriguing premise. It's like, stand by me, but with superheroes. Which is not a combination you usually think of. That sounds like a Mark Miller comic. Except that it's Jeff Lemire. So well, it'll yeah, actually yeah. be good. <laughs> I mean, yes. the premise might sound like, uh, no, if it was Mark Miller, then she would be not just dead, but you know what. Oh, yes. yes. And uh, I'm hoping that um, has a little, uh, slightly better taste yes. than that. From Under Mountains, number mm. one, by Claire uh, Gibson and Marion Chechler and Story and art by Sloan Leon, three dollars thirty-two pages. New fantasy it's a, series. It's a all-female fantasy series. Marion Churchland did uh, Beast, which is, like I said before, a great graphic novel. Eight House should have come out this month. Uh, it didn't, so we didn't get a chance to see her on a fantasy title as a writer. We saw preview images of yes. this, right? Yeah. It was really good at the it, time. it looked glorious. And to be completely honest, Image could use a bit more... Female presence? Well, that's always a good thing, but I was going to say more fantasy titles. Because so far, all they really have are The Autumn Lands, no, which is good, and Rat Word. Queens. And Wayward. Wayward isn't like... No, it's, it's not, not fa- It's not and fantasy. Skullkickers. It's urban fantasy. Skullkickers. It's it's just... Skullkickers is ending. Yeah, it was there. So now... I mean, and what was the Sovereign one... Sovereign was a mess. I yeah, and the one we reviewed with the, bar- with the Narnia Barbarian coming back to the real Birthright. world. Birthright. Yes. It's but these fa- are all no. It's fantasy. It is fantasy, but like Birthright and Wayward are comics that take place at least in part in the modern world. And I'm so you're talking about, about classic so, Tolkien-esque. No, fantasy? no, I'm talking about original fantasy, like okay. something like Rat Queens, which is completely you know it's an original world. There's well, no it's a D and D world with jokes yeah, added, but you know it's like it's not yeah. that between worlds thing, which can be good because Birthright so, is still good. So you get from Under Mountains and Headlooper at the same month. I'm really looking forward to that. Speaking of books that Image should always have more of because it's always a nice thing, and yet, uh, we have Faster Than Light number one, which is by Brian Haberlin and Gerard Van Dyke. Now, the problem here is that the previous text describes a very, very generic science fiction setup. It's like, Mm. humanity has discovered faster than light travel, yes, and now they're exploring the universe and establishing colonies on the Yes. For any other company, that would be innovative enough. For Image, it's Tuesday. It's like, yes. you know, <laughs> or Wednesday, as the case may be. So, or next week because it's late. That too. <laughs> I mean, it, it is sort of like you haven't told me anything about what the story is like. I don't need you to explain faster than light travel. Where science fiction goes to sleep. Image. Yeah, that's, that's pretty much it. Collections. Yes. South Bastards and Red Queens get the. The Lux hardcover treatment, mm-hmm. the first two arcs collected in a $30 nice-looking hardcover. If you don't already own them in books, in digital, in trades, well, get them. These are good books. Um, Steve Orlando and J.D. Faith have an original graphic novel coming out called Virgil. 
it's a revenge story with cops. That's about as as far as the no poets described. going down to hell. Well, you never know with Steve Orlando. Yeah. I feel like he he could. Somebody should somebody us. should do some where the Odyssey has failed. Someone should take the mantle. Yeah, we're probably going to end up saying this every single previews. But Eight House has a new creative team for issue number four called Yoris. It's by Helen Mayer and Phil Barlow. I don't. I know, have like, no idea who these people are. <laughs> Neither do I. But I'm assuming Brendan. In Brendan Graham, we trust. Them. Yeah. So basically, like every time it comes out, they're keeping the numbering, but they're changing the name. So yeah. it's going to be like really confusing. Like, maybe Brendan Graham is one of the four people who actually liked Deathmate. Mm. Eight House Purple, Eight House Magenta. That's that. Oh no! Oh no! <laughs> it's got not it. magenta. Oh boy! Dark Horse. In Dark Horse, yes. Uh, okay. You so, start? Calder is back for another miniseries. We really like the previous one. Yeah. Paul Tobin and Juan Ferreira. The story is ongoing. So, at this point, I think it's more like a collection of miniseries. Which yeah, is it's, it's the Hellboy method of every time he wants to do a story, they do, uh, yeah. they do a story instead of doing it every single month and pretending, uh, pretending it's an ongoing day. Because the, it's not. The only problem with that approach, and it's the same problem that we had with Bad Seed last time, is the accessibility issue. Like this is being well, but Bad Seed worked. We both like it, even though I've never, it. I've never read the first miniseries, and I didn't Neither even did know I. what. If it managed to work, then good God, it, it it worked. But we both had that problem of like when they were talking about Nimble Jack and yeah. all the things that happened. It wasn't quite clear mm-hmm. because Tobin does sort of assume that you've read the previous ones. Mm-hmm. So even though this is being billed as you know colder, toss the bones number one, be aware of the fact that you should read the first two miniseries. Just in case, because you know, accessibility is a problem here. Uh, the goon gets the library treatment. The dark horse, big, thick, uh, heavy, and good-looking hardcover, uh, four hundred ninety-six pages, forty dollars. Collects uh, the goon volume zero through three. Uh, volume zero is the pre-dark horse independent stuff, which right. isn't as good. And mostly on the art terms, uh, Eric Powell was still learning his way, but. Yeah. The Goon is definitely a book that yeah. came into its own when it was with Dark Horse. Yes, but A, even weak Eric Powell is good. By the time Volume 1 starts, Eric Powell is there. Yeah. And it's just amazing to look at. And the way he juggles dark comedy with really, really dark happenstance is amazing. Mm-hmm. It's it's a great series. And I think it's one of those things I want to own in a hardcover. Excellent. Uh, this one sounds really interesting. A new series called The Paybacks by Donny Cates, Elliot Rahal, and Jeff Shaw. I don't know any of these names. A bunch of bankrupt ex-heroes form a repo squad to foreclose on superheroes who are behind on their loans because, as we all know, superheroing is not cheap. So if previously you talked about something and I said it's a Mark Miller thing... That's a Joe Casey comic. It is a Joe Casey comic. It is a Joe Casey comic. (laughs) Joe Casey isn't writing this, but it sounds like it's one of those concepts. Or is he? Who is this Donny Cates? I've never heard of him before. Maybe Maybe he's a Joe Casey. Like if you change the words around, (laughs) it says Joe Casey. (laughs) Okay. Uh, It's interesting. I'll I'll be checking out the first issue. This seems to be an ongoing, not a miniseries. So the weird thing is that the previews had a quote that endorsed it. From Gerard, Gerard Way. Way, yes. Now, normally this would seem like a very out-of-place quote, except that Gerard Way did The Umbrella Academy, which yes. was really good. And Kill shockingly jo- good, I And Killjoys. Which was not so good. 
Yeah. I, I mean, did you manage to get through that many series? I haven't read it yet. The first issue was too confusing for me. I got have two th- two issues in, maybe three, and I was like, oh, okay, I'm done. I can't do it. Say the quote. Say it. I know. Oh, okay. I think my favorite thing about the book is that Night Knight, that's N-I-G-H-T, K-N-I-G-H-T, doesn't ride the unicorn. Like, I think that's genius. He's clearly on some mind-altering chemical at this point. But yes, it's called being Jared Way. Sure. Okay. I'm into it. I'll, mm. I'll check it out. Uh, Power Cube, number one of four by Aaron uh, Lopresti. A miniseries. Uh, what if you had a piece of technology that created anything that you could possibly want and all you had to do was imagine? So he's doing Green Lantern. Is it Green Lantern? Yes, that's this the sounds... whole point of the Green Lantern no, ring. No, but this sounds more like wish fulfillment in the abstract sense, as if you're actually warping that, reality. That was the original Green Lantern. Was it? Yes. Wait, you're talking about Alan Scott. Well, well, when they first thought of it, the ring could do basically anything. It was the Golden Age. Well, but it, it wasn't a ring. No, it was the, the ring, Lantern. The ring couldn't, like, rewrite reality. Oh, yeah. But it depends on the writer. Right, well, yeah. this being going... But, yeah, I'm sorry, I'm reading this, and this guy gets uh, something that could rewrite everything, it's... depends on the imagination. Yeah. He's a Dan Green Lantern! Well, the... Aaron Lepresti should pay DC Comics! The issue here is that I don't know enough about Aaron Lepresti to make an informed recommendation one way or the other, because mm-hmm. from what I've seen, he's known for Planet Hulk and JLI, neither of which I read. Is he any good? Well, the art's okay. The art's perfectly fine. His art, I, I never read anything he wrote. Mm. Because he didn't write when I thought that was Greg Pop. Right. God only knows. Which, well, we'll see. Also, it doesn't help that the premise is so vague. Like, you know, mm. a boy finds a wishful film machine. Yeah. We've talked before about, yeah. like, how previews need to be able to hook readers a little more strongly than that. But okay. We'll see. Um, IDW has recla- reclaimed. They claimed uh, Atomic Robo as their own. Mm-hmm. The series has left uh, its original publisher at five comics. Uh, so they're doing both a new Atomic Robo miniseries, Atomic Robo and the Ring of Fire, which is Atomic Robo in the West, I believe. Mm-hmm. Well, he was going to end up there eventually. Yes, I mean, and they're reprinting the first free trades as Atomic Robo, the any, the Everything Explodes collection. Which is accurate. <laughs> yes, $40, 384 pages. That's great. Good three volumes and collecting Yeah, the first, okay. you know, the original printing were $20 per volume, so it's much, much cheaper. That's true. Good news for fans of bizarre science fiction. Robots. We're doing and robots. Yes, IDW has, has yeah, its robot mode. They're on robot mode this month. Uh, so we have a sequel to D4VE or Dave, which is now Dave Two, number one. So D4VE Two, yeah, that's that's a mouth. Ryan Ferrier and Valentin Ramon. Okay, so we reviewed the first issue of the first miniseries, and I think we both enjoyed it. We loved very it. Much. Yes, it didn't quite end as well as I had hoped when I read the the first mini, but I am glad that it's getting a sequel, and I'll be sure to pick it up. Um, Gem and the Holograms get an outrageous annual. Not sure. any annual, an outrageous annual by Kelly Thompson, but not Sophie Campbell on art. Mm, that's a yeah, yes. Uh, that's the a art, there are several artists on this doing a movie night thing right. issue. Because the annual is, is like a series of yeah, one shots shot, yeah. of each character. Okay. Uh, Jen Bartal, Amy Maberson, Agnes Gerbowska, and Ariel Genovel. I have no idea who any of these people are. Well, wasn't Ariel Jovellanos an artist on Fresh Romance? Maybe. I think she was. Well, we liked the art in most of the Fresh Romance, even though we had problems with the writing. So this annual comes out the same month that Jen completes its first arc. Yes. 
So presumably, maybe Campbell needed some time yeah. off. Yeah, yeah, you know that makes sense. Jam is unusually good title mm-hmm. for what you would expect from Jam. Well, I, I think like, well, your expectations were low at the yes. time. Yes, like Campbell's artwork, her designs are phenomenal. Yes, yes. The writing could have gone either way, but I think that she has managed to sort of make it work. Make it work in context, you mm-hmm. know, like as a contemporary piece of work and not. Something that's clearly a throwback. Yes. And uh, From Hell is getting another reprint. Some more. Yes. Uh, this time it gets reprinted together with the Companion for this for Slipcase Edition. Uh, I love From Hell. Okay. I f- legit think it's Ellen Moore's best work, writing-wise. Mm-hmm. And the Companion by Eddie Campbell is mostly a collection of the scripts with notes by Campbell on the script. And it's amazing to read this because Ellen Moore has these long... Huge descriptions. Every panel is like 100, 200, 300 words. And then Eddie Campbell at the end of each page writes, So I decided to change that. <laughs> and then Alan Moore is like, Okay. I think like Eddie Campbell's the only person who could have said that to Alan Moore and not get like hexed or something. <laughs> because they seem to have like a really good working relationship, yeah. at least as the companion presents it. It's, Eddie Campbell is the only artist who has yet to find Alan Moore. Because Dave Li- Lloyd fought Ellen Moore. Dave Gibbons had a fight with him? Yes, after, before Watchmen. Because Dave Gibbons endorsed it. Oh. Yes. Wow. Every single artist, aside from Eddie Campbell, managed to... It's probably because they haven't him. worked together since. <laughs> no, but their friends and their friendship even managed to survive from hell, which Eddie Campbell endorsed as a movie. So I don't that, know. That's about the money. Maybe, like, maybe, maybe he's always... more, maybe he gives more specialty or something. Relax, Ellen! There's no need to get any... Have some tea. I mean, we're getting into Alan Moore again, yeah. but it's like, the fact that he picks fights with... I mean, what do you want Dave Gibbons to do? DC is going to put out before Watchmen whether he likes it or not. His options are to refuse the money, and Dave Gibbons isn't getting a whole lot of work these days that he can just summarily, like, not work, mm. right? And Alan Moore gets always has, like, these huge arguments with him. For what? Let the man have his payday. He certainly deserved it. What more could you possibly need? Now, there is one other thing in terms of solicits that I found interesting. I mean, there's nothing new with Boom. But September is a weird month for them because four of their high-concept original miniseries are ending simultaneously. This is Broken World, The Fiction, Ufology, and Burning Fields. I am assuming that October previews is going to have like an explosion of new stuff because... This is the drawback they of never, the miniseries. They never right? rest on their laurels, boom. No. They're always looking for something new. No, but the end result of that is uh, like, you're reading September and thinking, I can't wait until should, October. We should probably mention that Giant Day is, is now moved on from being yes. a 6-issue mini to a 12-issue maxi. I need an not explanation. An, not an ongo- it sells a lot. No, and I, I, that I understand, but Giant Days, as it's being printed in Boom... Is a reprint of the webcomic. No, Giant no, no, Days. no. Giant Days is a webcomic. Yes, but it's a continuation, I think, of the webcomic. I think it was, mm. it, they simply called it Giant Days, but it was a different actual There's comic. no way to know that. Well, not right now. So, yeah, it, it's a success, and boom is as boom does, just as Lumberjanes. If yeah. it succeeds, we'll make it go. Absolutely. Uh, but unlike Lumberjanes, it's not ongoing. So, for now, it's not ongoing. For They'll now. reach issue well, 12 and. But he's doing. John Allison is doing another webcomic. Uh, Bad Machinery, right? Yeah, and it's continuing the storyline. So I, like, I don't know what it is, but I'm assuming... The Bobbinverse is huge and complex and scary. I mean, listen, I, I, I want to read it, 
But every time I start, it's like, oh, oh my, my God. God. We're talking two complete web series, right? Bobbins and their Scary Go Round. Giant Days has been taken offline, so presumably that's this miniseries, yes. right? And then there's Bad Machinery. Okay, shall we go to actual comics? comics? Reviews! Uh, shall we start with Image? Sure. As we do. Empty Zone number one, written by uh, Jason Sean Alexander, with art by Jason Sean Alexander. They like working together, these two. And colors by Louis NCT, or Nipt. <laughs> Is it with artist names after Echo? I, I don't know. Uh, it's a uh, 350 and... Well, you know what? No, you know what it means? They cannot come at us afterwards and say, you got our name wrong. <laughs> Your name is spelled Lewis N-C-T. I don't know what to do with that. I'm sorry. Uh, it's a 350 comic. Yes. Uh, the plot is... <laughs> Good luck. <laughs> okay. We're in some sort of a dark, noirish, steampunkish future. And our heroine... Corinne. Hmm? Corinne. Yes, I'm, I'm thinking of the name of her occupation. She's a courier, right? She's um, like a curry, half courier. <laughs> She's doing missions for people in dark places. That's it. You um, know, they hire her to look to wait in the bar and find. She does some... everything. Yes. she she's a courier. She's a contractor. She's a hacker. They're call they're calling her a contractor, which is a generic name for. She does whatever the the her handlers need her to do. Mm-hmm. And she has one arm and one robot arm. Because, why not? Robot arms are always good, apparently. No, Furiosa set the tone. Now everybody's coming out with robot arms now. I was thinking of someone else. Uh, because the art so reminded me of Sinkevich. Yes. And so I immediately went to the Electra Assassin and the uh, Shield Agent Garrett with the oh, robot arm. Oh, good. It, it okay. even looked like a Sinkevich robot arm. You know, it's not like one smooth thing. It's... All wires and, and, and pistons and, yeah. and squares. And, okay, nothing else. The plot is really vague and nothingness, but the art, man. Yes. That book is amazing. No, the art is absolutely gorgeous. Wonderful. It's not as abstract as Simkevich, but no, in terms no. of like the tone and the atmosphere mm-hmm. and the detail. He knows when to give you more detail and when to pull away and make things more abstract and dreamlike. And the, the nightmarish designs, like the robot with the odd panda face, which is the creepiest panda ever. Yeah. So, yeah, the art is gorgeous, but the plot is nothing. Incomprehensible. No, I don't think it's incomprehensible. It's just, it's nothing. There's Harry Rowan, and she has bad nightmares, and she has a job. And she fights a robot. That's no, no, it. no. Before she fights a robot, she climbs onto the roof chasing after a ghost who she then has sex with. And then all the other ghosts are watching. And she doesn't like the fact that they're watching her. But then while she's having sex, all of a sudden she's not having sex anymore. And then she's somewhere else. She goes through the city and then she goes to this bar. And then a panda robot bursts in for no reason that I can tell. Yeah. And she licks the guy's neck in order to infect him with something. and or A or tracker. I think something. it's a tracker. But then he's dead, and then okay, she wrote, reprograms the role. It's just like plot, plot-wise, pretty much on the same level of Intersect, yeah. yeah. Which was we've re- I've read it three times, Intersect, and I had no idea what's going on. Yeah. Now this, you know, what's going on because the art is a whole lot better. But again, the plot is it's all vague references and yeah. half important. It's completely disjointed. Yeah, like there's you have this collection of scenes, but there's no sense of like okay. She's in her apartment. The guy calls her to give yes. her the assignment. She sees someone outside her door. She runs upstairs. She doesn't know who this guy is. Then she figures out who he is. She immediately jumps on top of him, right? Yes. 
As she's doing this, all of these ghosts are looking around her, and up until that point, you have no idea that there's anything supernatural going on. And then, like, these ghosts are watching her get it, get it on, which is, you know, creepy. Now, I'm usually... Is it a ve- dream? Is it real? I'm usually very receptive to vagueness, but the thing here, here it's pretentious, I don't care about it, vagueness, mm-hmm. because I can't connect to anybody in the story, I don't care about the vagueness that's happening to them. And because the vagueness is so... Oh, it's so dark and weird. And I'm like, oh, it's boring. It's yeah. And it's a shame because, again, I, we cannot stress how ridiculously good-looking this comic is. Here's what I'm wondering. This was apparently one of those series where, like the humans, it existed in a different form before mm. it came to Image. From what I've been able to find out, this series used to be published by Sirius Entertainment. They're best known for uh, Scary Godmother, you know, oh. Joe Thompson, Poison Elves. Uh, that has nothing to do with what we're seeing here. Scary no. Godmother and this do not belong on the same planet. No, but what I'm saying is I approach this as if it were a first issue. Yes. It might not be. Uh, no, no. I think it's a first issue. I just think it's a first issue that's trying too hard to be because mysterious. Because seems to assume that we know who she is. No, no. I think He never introduces her as, you know... There isn't that moment of character establishment. Yeah, I think I think it's one of those series that's uh, had a bit too much of modern entertainment's tendency towards mystery. The assumption of a lot of writers today is, well, if we inter- start off with a mystery, you, you're going to stay with us because you want to know what's going to happen, even though we don't know anything else about the series, even though you don't care about the character. It's the post-Lost World of... Well, if we ask enough weird questions, you're going to have to stay with us because your curiosity is going to get the better of you. Because but sometimes that tactic works and yeah. sometimes it doesn't. The yeah. key to making it work is to giving the reader something to hold on yeah. to. You know what? Even It's like, I mean, Chew as the most basic example of you don't know in the beginning what all the deal is with the chicken, da, 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 da. but you have Tony Chu, who is an interesting enough character on his own right. You know, another example for me, uh, Morning Glories. Now, Morning <laughs> Now, morning is going from bad to yeah, worse. No, here. because morning glories went down a deep dark path, but the first two trades actually managed to work. You actually cared about the characters and the mystery. Only after, you know, the first 12, 20 issues when it came obvious that he's just gonna keep on piling more and more oddness and questions instead of, instead of delivering any sort of comprehensible story, I stopped caring. But for a long, long while, I was there. This one lost me on the first issue. Morning Glories lost me on the third trade. Yeah. That's a huge difference. That's exactly the key is what Mm. I'm saying. Like when you read the first issue of Morning Glories, Nick Spencer makes an effort to say, okay, this is the protagonist, right? Mm. You start out with a certain situation where you understand who it is. It's like, Corinne, I don't, I can't even tell you with any degree of certainty what her expertise is because she basically does all of the functions. She beats people up. She beats people up. She hacks a robot just by touching him, right? So she's a thief, assassin, hacker, bounty hunter. She's and the, apparently in the She's the girl four, with the dragon tattoo. Even the girl with the dragon tattoo has limitations on what she can accomplish. Here it's like she's never challenged for mm-hmm. anything except like her own torture. And of course she has the typical, you know, I'm so cold. And the water scalds me, and I'm burning. Yeah, and it's hot. Frank Miller, uh, it is not. No, I, I'm I'm gonna look forward to this artist's next project as an artist solo. Not this one, no. Yeah, not not as a writer. I um, just can't care. And enough. then you have ghosts for some reason. Uh, should we move on from Image to Dark Horse? Yes. Yet still remain in the same depressing future. Well, 
You, you, I mean, this is actually a really good example of how two creators right. can take a similar idea and go in completely different Okay, uh, you explain this one so, and then I'll okay. give my We're version. talking about Mulan Revelations number one. This is one of four. It's a four-issue mm-hmm. miniseries by Robert Alter and Mark Andreco on writing. Mika, uh, Micah Kenshiro on art. This is from Dark Horse. Mm-hmm. Let's get down to business. No, okay, we're not going to go there. You really But like that movie, don't now, you? I really do. Listen, I, I'm a huge fan of Ming-Na Wen. But anyway, now that I have it out of my system, let's talk about the miniseries. So, this was an interesting first issue. Now, it's interesting in exactly the opposite way that Empty Zone was not. Because we start out with an interpretation of the legend of Fa Mulan. Like, Mulan is a, is a Chinese folk hero. Yes. A mythological character. Similar to, you know, Hercules, sort of legendary figure. Less myth, more like uh, an extremer version of Jean d'Arc, shall we say? With the caveat that it's never been, yes. to my knowledge, confirmed whether or not yeah, she Yeah, but she's not, she's not like a mythical goddess. She's a no, folk she's hero. she's a human. Uh, the Amer- these American uh, cowboy stories, you know, Pecos Bill and such. Mm-hmm. That's a better example. I yes, think. absolutely. Yes. We begin this particular story with an interpretation of Mulan that is unusual in that she's fighting demons. Yes. Now, as far as I know, in terms of, like, the original legend, it's more of... Conquering a... armies. Exactly. But okay, well, we can go with the image, with the demons, that's fine. So we have this whole situation where she's helping an army of light spirits fight off these demons. Then we jump forward 2,000 years. And so what you're been... saying is that long ago, in a distant land, <laughs> an ancient Chinese warrior fought an unspeakable evil. Now the fool <laughs> seeks to return to the past. I miss Mako, voice it's... actor. I mean... It's Mulan Jack, Samurai Mulan, I don't know. Whoa. Okay, no, no. Not exactly. No, like, because she's it's a reincarnation, yeah. we're led to believe. She, it's the same demons. Yes. They're still around 2,000 years later in like futuristic Shanghai. Running the earth behind the sceneries. Mm-hmm. And Mulan is like a rich heiress who lives in a sort of post-apocalyptic... Uh, well, it's not necessarily post-apocalyptic, but it is very strongly co- based on that cyber- class divide. Cyberpunkish uh, corporate-owned mm-hmm. culture. And she's the good one, and her brother is the party animal who takes no responsibility for anything. Yeah, and although he comes off more... When she goes to visit her yeah. brother, he comes off slightly sympathetic. He, yeah. He's a loser. Like, yeah. it's not his fault. He's not, he, not a jerk, a loser. Yeah, yeah just like you, you said. Know, so, and, and she helps him, and she volunteers at this clinic, mm. you know, in order to... And in fact... There's this her, huge, uh, giant disease that kills everybody with implants and since 80% everybody of... Everybody has implants. It's very cyberpunkish. The, the robot implants is a thing I haven't seen in science fiction for years because it's yeah. so out of fashion. Well, here there's sort of a twist on the formula mm. in that it's the implants that are killing people. So... It's not a twist. I've seen it before yeah, in the Johnny Mnemonic. But wasn't the point of Johnny Mnemonic that other people could have those implants without being no most people hurt who, by them well it was a chance but most people who were sick had the implants so that was a, huh. well it's a terrible movie that's it terrible. I mean, but it's not a new thing right um okay well the juxtaposition here of you know mulan as a legendary figure and this kind of cyberpunk interpretation is i think uh, relatively unique especially once the you know you get to the end and it's like The end of the first issue basically begins with, next issue we will reveal what's really going on. Yeah. Now, here's the thing. You're right in that it manages to be both the same plot-wise and completely different presentation-wise from Empty Zone. 
but it's the same to me in it's a bad comic. And it's bad in a different way, it's just, it's boring. Uh, Empty Zone is bad in execution, it's just, you have no idea what he wants to say with it. This one is just, you know, I knew everything that's going to happen before it happens. When they, they took her in the past to her zone and they're like, now something must happen. Oh, she's going to wake up in another future or... In... But she doesn't wake and, up. It's a hurry incarnation. Yeah, she doesn't and, know who she is. And again, that's obvious to me. Once okay. I saw her, I'm like, oh, I know what you're, where you're going with it. The big twist of there are demons. It's actually a twist. And I'm, that's supposed to be a twist. There are demons. We saw the demons. Obviously, there's going to be more demons. And she's such a goody two-shoe here. You know, she's the yeah. only one of the rich people who volunteers at the shelter. She's the only one who knows the plight of well, the... Well, her, her brother calls her out on this. It's like, yeah, you know, that she has this guilt complex because she's rich and she's living but in the But still, world where... she's the only one who understands. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 no. I don't she's, know. She's I a per- that problem. She's such a perfect character in this first issue. She's such a knows everything's over-compassionate, probably going to end up being the best fighter in the world or whatever, with her uncle. I I, well, I the, don't care about her think, at all. Okay, I think part of the reason I might be responding more strongly to this, because I really did enjoy this issue, is because when you are reading this, you know, you're, at, you're right in the sense that the character that we see in the future presentation does seem slightly cookie-cutter. She is, you know, this charitable spirit, right? She's a well, she's fundamentally a good person. Right? Yes. And she is not an activist. She is someone who is doing her small part, and she's, like, as a way of assuaging her guilt, presumably because she inherited this money because her parents died. So, like, she doesn't want it, right? But the thing is, what I'm always keeping in mind as I'm reading this is that she's Mulan. So at some point... She has this potential for being like you know this badass warrior, but we do, we won't see. I don't think we see any potential because she's already there. We just don't see her killing anybody here. But yet, uh, yeah, we get her in the dojo with her uncle. So obviously, mm-hmm. she's been trained. And like I said, nothing. Well, I don't know if she's been trained because he gives her like, this gun at one point, yeah. and she's not sure what to do with it. Yeah, well, she's not sure because uncle, why do you have guns here? <laughs> yeah, but here here's the thing. It didn't surprise me, which I'm okay with not being surprised. But the execution wasn't interesting enough it was just so it was so what i expected and nothing more there was nothing there beyond the surface and also the art isn't very good really i thought the art was amazing really i don't like the blocky that blocky style that oh so toneless the skin it's just it's so computer generated well that's the point what because you're looking bad no (laughs) because this is like this is a view of a cyber... I mean, okay, when you compare the cyberpunk setting here to the cyberpunk setting in Empty Zone, right? Empty Zone is more typical because it's the dirty, run-down, slimy, gritty city of the future where do not step into any dark mm-hmm. alleys for the life of you. And here, all of these scenes have like this... It looks cel-shaded almost, like the old animated yeah. style with the cell shading. And it's like, that feels appropriate for a Shanghai in the 24th, 25th century, I, where all of these things are like, you know, they're not exactly. It just human. feels to me like there have been, mo- like all the characters have been modeled from a bad computer game. Not bad, just older computer game. They're all pose and I don't get any, any sense of movement. I just, I don't like it. Okay. I really. So we're we're completely yes. We're at cross purposes I, no, because I really really enjoyed this issue, and I think 
part of the reason I might be more tolerant for the mm. the unoriginality of the setup is because it's a four issue miniseries. Like you're not really committing one way or the other. Mm. I'm here for the next issue, I think, because I do feel like it'll pick up. But what happens after that? We'll see. Uh, um, like I do like that they made an effort to make her sympathetic from the start. Not necessarily in an original sense, but you know, she's a rich heiress who is not Paris Hilton, right? No, yeah. She's not like this self-absorbed. Ugh. So in that sense, I feel like I'm willing to see what happens to her next. Okay, and we end up with a boom mini, yes. uh, the fiction number one by. Kurt Pierce and David Rubin with art by Michael uh, Gerland. Mm-hmm. Uh, shall I do the story? Shall sure. You? Okay. A group of uh, young adults who together as kids find a mysterious book, which is a portal to another dimension in which they can experience basically everything they imagine until one day during one of their hanging arounds in this fictional world, one of them goes missing. And so flash forward to the future. They're adults now and one of them finds the book Again, which surely something wrong will come from this. Well, finds the book. It comes through. Yeah. The, the book fi- <laughs> In Soviet Russia, book, book finds, finds you. you. <laughs> uh, so, so what do you think of it? Um, I think it's okay as a first issue. Uh, nothing fancy, but it does the job properly. And it's very good looking, as boom number ones tend to be. They always find some new artist to you know, give, give it some identity of its own. And the worlds inside the book are very, very attractive. They're very lush. Um, it's good, but it's not super exciting good. Mostly because there's a whole, most of the book is just preparation. The actual plot seems to be kicking in only in the next issue. See, it's interesting how much these three books have in common. Like, okay, as premises go, this isn't the most original. Right. No. The unwritten only just ended. No. Uh, you know, there's a bit of Narnia here. Yeah. Oh, that whole yes. trope of like adults going back to worlds they knew as children. No. Steven Spielberg's Hook. Right? Uh, David Grossman's The Magician series. Yeah, you know, it's not like, David Grossman, Lev Grossman. Lev Grossman. <laughs> so, and if it was just that, I think I might be a little less enthusiastic towards it yes. because also the characters are not most original, unique. Yes, I mean Cassie. We don't know that much about her, but Max, for example, starts off as a douchebag. The only thing that gives him sort of a redeeming quality is when we have that uh, that sort of like Ben Day dot flashback mm. where he remembers being separated from her and how yes. like that's something that, that still haunts him after all this time. But there's not a lot there going on, and I feel like I wouldn't be that into it except for the last two pages. Okay. That's the point where things get interesting because first of all, they come back to this imaginary world and it is a mess. Like they are looking at these black ruins mm-hmm. which don't bear any resemblance to uh, the place what, that they recognize. What was the other boom miniseries we talked about recently? The one about the virtual world? Arcadia. It's almost like the, uh, the epilogue of the first issue of Arcadia which is, what is this strange, terrible yeah. thing coming about? See, it's funny. Like in Arcadia, that felt like an interruption. Here it feels like the hook. Yes. You have this last page epilogue where something completely bizarre Disturbing. happens. We're not going to spoil it. Yeah. But something really, really weird. And you're looking at it and you're thinking, okay, up until this point, I wasn't really that interested in the overall story because I've seen it before, mm-hmm. you know. But here, like, this is the moment where it's like, oh, okay, there's something else and going really, on And really, uh, the whole book is beautiful, but the last two pages are just 
stunning. Just yeah. from the end of the reality breaking down type thing to the appearance of the whatever that thing is at the end, which is creepy as mm-hmm. damn. I don't know. Also, oddly enough, the end quote is not from a book, which you would expect from this. It's from Upstream Color. Mm-hmm. I love the upstream color. I'm gonna gi- I'm gonna give this one another issue because <laughs> it quotes a writer, that, a creator that I like. I mean, like very similar to Milan Revelation, mm-hmm. the fact that it's a four issue miniseries works, I feel works in its favor. It works in its favor in the sense that even if you're not sure, there's enough going on here that's good that you can be like, you know, there's an endpoint. Yeah, it'll yeah. work out one way or the other. Yes, and know? very and very quickly. Yeah. Well, then again, it's boom. Maybe you'll reach issue four, and they're like, uh, the, fiction, the, the fiction, the fiction, now an eight issue miniseries, and then well, you reach number seven. The fiction, now a 60 issue series. But they tend to make these decisions no, yeah. when it's relevant. And like, when it's very, very successful. Yeah. So we'll see. Yeah. We'll see how it goes. I, I think, like, again, there's, there's so much of this that is typical. Hmm. But I think when you get to the end point, that's the moment where, for me, at least, I made the decision to commit a little bit longer. Yeah, I think from all our number ones this week, uh, this episode, this is the best. Not by a long no. shot, uh, but I, I, I would prefer. Still say, I would still say that Mulan yeah, Revelation okay. was the best, only because there's a lack of typicality, I think, with the scenery in, in Mulan Revelation. And also, Mulan is just like a more interesting character than the kids in the fiction. Because, you know, I mean, like, Max, Cat, Tyler, you don't even see anything. Yeah. Tang has this whole thing I with his th- father. I think they're equally cookie cutter for me, Mulan and these kids. Well, we'll see how it goes. <laughs> it can, it, I'm sticking around to see the rest of the miniseries. Okay, uh, tr- long review, long form trade series, whatever. We need to come up with a name for that. <laughs> uh, okay. The review, which is not for a first issue. We're doing this one, Summer, by uh, Marika Tamaki, author and Julian Tamaki, illustrator. It's a graphic novel that came out during 2014, won a whole bunch of awards. It's from first second. Right? Yes. Okay. Uh, and this one, Summer, is the story of two young girls, uh, Rose and her friend Wendy, and they always meet on this summer vacation that Rose family takes in this small beach community. But now things are trying to get a little different because they're both at this age where you're not quite a teenager, but you're not quite a kid anymore. And so they actually start to notice all the family pressures around them and the going-ons of the older kids and what they're up to. And that's basically it. It's a story of that time, the time of change. Okay. Um, I picked this one up because I've read it in one go and I, I adore this. A, it's beautiful. I mean, Julian Tamaki. There are so many panels in this book where our whole page panels are something very simple, like a kid on a swing. Mm-hmm. And the way it captures that feeling of when you're a kid of that one small thing can become your whole world and become the most joyous thing on earth, just being on the swing. I've never seen it like this. I've seen things that are trying to capture that feeling, like, um, what was that movie? Long-ass movie with Brad Pitt about his kids. Uh, I don't remember that name. Right. Why Three of Life. Free of Life. Ew. Yeah, that no. was. Yeah, or or last year. Uh, speaking of movies, um, Ethan Hawke, the one where he's a parent for like twelve years. Uh, Grown ups. Uh, Why do you watch these movies? These no, the Richard. The Richard. No, the Richard Linklater movie, which was pretty good. Um, God, I don't remember the one that was actually filmed for like twelve years with one kid growing up. Boyhood. Boyhood. Yeah. Ew. And you know, I've seen stories in movies, in comic, in. Uh-huh. Novels trying to capture this feeling, 
And for me, none of them ever worked. Always felt like an adult looking outside and sort of doing sketching out of, well, as a kid, I felt this. Here, for the first time, properly in fiction, I felt someone manages to capture that snapshot of a lifetime. Mm-hmm. And so, like I said, A, the art was great, and B, I liked the feeling. And the story I found was really interesting in a way it progressed without anything being properly resolved because the kids, the, our protagonists, don't really understand what's going on around them. So we are always limited to their point of view of whatever is going on. So it never becomes like a huge drama drama. It's always a small drama. So I completely disagree with everything you just said. Good, okay. good, good. I have to be honest here. This really didn't work for me at all. Yes, Jillian Tamaki's illustrations are beautiful. No dissent there. But the major problem that I have with this book is that the most obvious point of comparison is Daniel Klaus' Ghost World. What happens in this one summer, right? In terms of plot, the book goes on for 200 pages with no real character development for Rose and Wendy, right? Those are our... Well, Rose is like the narrator focalizer, but Mm -hmm. Wendy is as important in that context. And it's these two girls who have these conversations that don't go anywhere, Nothing comes of it. Like she, there's a moment where she gets into a fight with Wendy over the way that she sees the pregnant girl, Jenny. Mm-hmm. But nothing comes of that, right? She has this fight with her mom about like what happened with them, and that doesn't happen either. And you have like this idea that her mother's miscarriage affected the family, right? Because well, you can yeah. see it very clearly. But she doesn't seem to be behaving any differently because Wendy doesn't recognize any change in her. Like, there's no moment of acknowledging you were different last year before your mother I don't, had this I thing. don't think there's a big moment. That's what I like here. There's no moment of big acknowledgement. There's no moment of revelation. I think it's there. It's just very, very subtle. The no. way the way we understand that Rose and uh, and Wendy can never be the same again. And their friendship is got, sort of going to have to be over. Because it's all hang on these tangentially related, we're on a vacation together, we're kids together. The reason that that doesn't work for me is because, again, like if you were to take Ghost World as a comparison, it's the dialogue because Rose and Wendy talk about nothing. You know, Wendy has this dialogue where, like she says, she doesn't know what she's going to look up when she grows up because she's adopted. That's as far as the conversation goes. Now, when you compare it to like what Klaus did with uh, Enid and Rebecca, right? Mm-hmm. When they talk about things, they're foreshadowing what's going to happen to them. There's the scene where they talk about, like, they imagine the man that they want to be with, and See, he's this pile of That's a problem for me because, because I've never read Ghost World. So I've oh. only watched the movie. Okay. I'm not, I'm not a well, big, I'm not a big Klaus fan in general. Neither am I, but I'm saying, like, it's the work that most reminded me of this, no. but it fails where Ghost World succeeds. No, but, because it's, but they're aiming for a completely different audience and beats a completely different set of protagonists true. because I don't think there's a huge difference between being what, Anita and Becca are like 16 year olds and these are 12 year old girls. Okay. It's but, a huge difference. But there's the issue there of, like, you have the idea that other more interesting stories are happening in the background yes. and that we don't know about them. No. It's true for for this one summer, right? Because everything that happens with Jenny and everything that happens with Alice is monumentally more interesting than what's going on with Rose and Wendy, which is fine. Like, I understand that that's the conceit. But you see the same effect in Ghost World where, like, there are all of these other stories you could have been telling, but you're focalizing through these two girls. The difference, I think, is simply that... In this one summer, it doesn't go anywhere. It doesn't lead anywhere. They don't say anything meaningful. There's never a dialogue where anyone reaches some kind of understanding. And if that's the point of it, like, 
The point is to show how pointless it all is. No, uh, I don't. Know, I, I don't, don't think. I don't think the point is to show how pointless it is. This book has so few words in it overall. For a two hundred page plus book, it's a very short read. I've read it. Like but that's a creative decision. Yes. Yes. What I'm saying is, I don't think it's trying to say anything with words. I'm thinking here a lot of the illustration just tell the story, and I, I just got it. And I don't think the point that it's pointless. What would you say is Wendy's character arc in this? Like. How would you define, you know, where she is at the beginning of the story and where she is at the end? I think it's a character arc that they both share about learning that they can't share it anymore. In Why? A way. In what way? Because they're adults. Because, not they're adults, they're getting older. And they... Where they, does that, like, where would you see that? Hmm? Where do you see that in the story? What? You want to point at like a certain yes, point? Yes! But I, that, I that's point, exactly the I thing. I can't like, point at the point because it's a process. The whole book is okay. one swing away from each G- other. Give me an example of the process then. How do you narrow down an aspect of this story? Right? Like, Rose doesn't undergo any kind of process here. She doesn't. She begins a story. She meets Wendy, right? Clearly, she is still having like these complicated feelings because of her mother's miscarriage. Her friendship with Wendy continues. It's not that they don't fight. Like she develops this crush on the dud. Yes. That causes her to sort of like call Jenny a slut. Yes. And that's it. Like it doesn't nothing happens as a result of that. It's you know like there's no you can't parse it. I you keep waiting for the transformative event because even in the film of Ghost World, right? Because the film and the book, they share certain okay. similarities. Like, and I know I keep going back to that, but because, like, I was reading this, and I kept remembering Ghost World. And it's not even my favorite novel or anything, but it's like, look at the differences between how two writers can talk about, like, you have these two characters who, they're not talking yeah, I, about I, what they're going through. I thought, I, because I had the opposite problem with the Ghost World movie, which I thought it was too much trying to be on point and sort of like, at the end, this is the process. This is what you have to learn from this. Nobody ever says that, though. No, nobody in, says that. In, but in, that's what, what I got from Ghost World, she says in the beginning, like you know, I'm, I want to leave. I want to go. Yeah. And you, they don't have like this explosive. No, but she's but ruining the, the life end, of that. Uh, what's his name? Maurice Seymour. Seymour. Yeah, but that's where it's going. You know, here it's like I couldn't figure out Rose's trajectory, like because she doesn't. She has to make up with her mother. She has to understand the process and she had to understand what the miscarriage means and that other people suffer too. She's so very into herself in the beginning as a child is, you know, this is my world, this is my joy, and opening outwards, I think. Understanding that Jenny suffers, that her mother suffers, that other people exist. That's the process of getting older, right? Where does she figure that out? Again, I don't think there's a point. I think it's a slow build process. Well, I, I had a lot of difficulty. Mm. I mean, it seemed to me because at the end of the day, you know, they all like. There's a scene where her father leaves, mm-hmm. right? It seems to be indicating that again, like something's going on that she doesn't know about. But then he comes back, and it just, you know, like there's no progression. I don't think it's pointlessness. I just think it's the how do you say that it's inevitable? It's the inevitability of it? The inevitability of growing up, of learning, of... But what... You need to be able to see that, though. I, I think I see it like enough. If, if Tamaki wants to say, okay, Rose went through something, and now, as a result of that, she has matured. But you can't 
point to a no, single like, yeah, we in keep coming back that, to is it is there a point? And I no, no, no. When I say point, it's like you can't find a scene or a page or a panel. Like, yeah, if you compare the there two, isn't, you could see her. Change. There isn't the moment of revelation. I agree with not that. just the moment of revelation, but there's no aftermath of the revelation. Yes, either. even if the epiphany had happened off panel, uh, you know Scott McCloud's. Uh, he has this graphic novel, Sculptor. The Sculptor. Yeah, I haven't read okay. it. Oh, okay. So never mind. <laughs> <laughs> You're bringing a point of comparison that I don't know. I know. Oh, I'm lost. Um, I am lost in the world of your graphic fiction. Just, no, because I'm thinking of, there are so many examples of the slice of life, you know, yeah. down to earth, the relationship yeah. between individual people. And for me, a lot of these things fail because they're so maddeningly obvious Whenever I read a slice of life comic about whatever who grows up or whatever who has a fight with his father, it's always to me, okay, I see your point from the beginning, I see your arc from the first page, and I see where you're going to end up, and I see how you have your big, I don't know, crying in the rain right. learning moment. And here it never happens, and I prefer it overall. But that's what makes it a failure, in my opinion, because slice of life as a genre is not where you find the twists. Like, by definition, yes. if it's patterning itself on real life, then presumably this is how real people behave. And this is how they have... Like, and for know, me, this is the closest to, to actual representation of how real oh. kids at that age behave and feel and view the world. It doesn't make for an engaging story, though, at least from my perspective, because... Uh, yeah. For me, it is. Nothing you can parse here. Uh, we're, we're, we're so at crosshead <laughs> over this because I like it for this reason, you yeah, hate it for this reason. For the exact it's same not, reason. Yeah, it's, it's like, I mean, th- that's what yeah. different perspective do. Damn it. Yeah, it's, I gravitate more towards stories where, because it's fiction, right? Mm-hmm. These are not meant to be people that you plucked out of the street and yes, 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 obviously. Them. So the conventions of fiction have to apply, right? There's structure, there's narrative. If someone's angry in the first act, they'll blow up in the third act, right? You you understand that that's sort of like the pattern here. Tamaki wants to work against that, which is fine. I, I'm not objecting to trying to subvert it. And again, like I do think that the pointlessness of it all and the ah. fact that she doesn't have like the moment of revelation you... and she doesn't fight with Wendy. She doesn't like break up with Wendy. Have you ever watched or read a slice of life anime or manga? Tentacles always tend to turn up sooner or later. So no, I don't know so how no. slice of life so they were. Because I don't know. Uh, I haven't watched a lot, but I've watched enough to sort of realize. And to me, it's closer to the What anime. would you use as an example of that? Uh, I don't know. I can't, I can't think of names right now. You, you sort of put me like Lovely Complex or uh, what's the one about the girls in the school, Azumanga Dio maybe? Free? No, Free is about fan service, right? So the, the ones about the... I don't know. Free is about a bunch of swimmers posing with other clothes. But that's, that's slice of life too. Well, They're not like robot swimmers or anything. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. They might be. They have the bodies of the, of the Terminator, so maybe... Um, but yeah, a slice of life in anime really is maybe the closer comparison here, okay. which is, you know what? No, no, no. I'm I'm pulling too much in that direction, and, no, and I, even cause, cause because even slice how... of life anime has uh, something closer to what you described, which is the moment of understanding. There right. was this one movie, uh, this anime movie, which is a collection of short stories about. A boy and a girl meeting at different points in their life, which... Summer or something. This also had some, Summer Wars? No, not Summer Wars. That one has giant uh, satellites falling oh. at people. It's not <laughs> no, a slice okay. of life. What am I thinking of? Voices of a Distant I... Star, maybe? Something like that, yeah. yeah. There's, it's like an anthology of short stories. Stories, yeah. Okay. So that was closer to me, I to think, than what we see here. And, and there we don't even see the arc because it specifically it jumps over time. So you keep on meeting these characters in different positions. 
in different points of life. And that was close to me in the feel of it all, in not the inevitableness, the this is what happens right now and you should feel the right now. Like, I I understand what you're saying. The problem for me is that if I were to take the entire story Mm -hmm. of this one summer, right, Tamaki designs it in such a way that you are looking... Which Tamaki? (laughs) The Tamakis. Well, I'm assuming that... They're, they're, I, I assume they created together. It's not just okay. one writing, one doing well, the Well, let's art. go with that. Then. Yes. So the Tamaki sisters are... They are very consciously taking a specific excerpt mm-hmm. of time. Because there's no time skips here either. Yes. There's no jumping forward, jumping back. You have, like, uh, allusions to a flashback, but it's usually one panel or two. Yes. So, okay. You have this slice of time, which is... Even from the first page, like, it's posited as they are going to this cabin, right? They're going away from whatever their normal life looks like into this other place, and Wendy is a friend that she doesn't have regular contact with. Mm-hmm. She defines it as cabin friends, right? Yes. Like, their cabins are, so they, they hang out. Okay. So this is very much a sort of bubble, a particular moment in space and time that is looking at what is going through Rose's head while she's here, like while she's like stepping out of her regular life, and yet, of course, her mother's problems follow them. So, Okay. The problem is, when you get to the end of the story, she's going back to her life, right? Nothing has happened. Her crush on the dud. Not only does she never bring it up in context with him, she never confronts the whole idea of... Like, their thing is that they're constantly overhearing dialogues that other people are having. Yes. And they develop their whole other, like, interpretation. So she develops a crush on the dud and becomes convinced... That Jenny is pregnant, but like, it's, but it's not his baby because that's what he says, right? Yes. And then she has this whole, and then Wendy's like, "What the hell are you talking about?" But nothing comes of that, right? It's an encounter that she has. She never said, like, I don't think she even speaks to Jenny. No, at I any think point, there's like one line when they're both on different corners of the same building. Yeah, and, and like that's it. Yes, and then she, all of that, like that entire storyline that she observes, doesn't change her. Because, like, my biggest, I think if I had to, like, sum up my, my problems with this book in the simplest way possible, I don't get the feeling that Rose is any different at the end of the story than she is at the beginning. Which means I just read 200, 300 pages of empty narrative. And that just doesn't work for me. Well, I told my opinion at the beginning and you yep. failed to change it, sir! No, I will not change it. <laughs> but, uh, I mean, yeah, again, yeah, it's yeah. a lovely graphic You novel, got two perspectives. Not for me. Yes. That's yeah, the best thing. Well, it's lovely. The the art is lovely. Yes. We can agree on the bare minimum of it. We had a bunch of issues. <laughs> That's the theme of today, right? Uh, yeah. We love the art. What what the hell is going on with the story? We can never, we can never agree. Yeah. Well, I, no, I think we both agree that Empty Zone was well, incomprehensible. Yeah, we, yes, yes. But, you know. So, not a great week. But we'll be back in two weeks. Uh, hopefully with better selection for the single issues. Assuming images on time with their books, which yes. is never a safe assumption to make. Until that time, I'm Tom Shapira. And I'm Sean Edry. Bon appetit.